Hey, everybody, and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here, and I'm super excited to invite my friend, Charlie Mulligan, to the show today. Hey, Charlie, how are you? I'm doing great, Emily. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, just to give everybody a little bit of background, uh, Charlie is truly a grassroots activist, and I hope for all of us, he is a future political candidate as well. And I had the pleasure of meeting Charlie initially a few months back at an event, and um, I was with a friend, and then we all just kind of started talking about the state of the world and got in a good conversation and have continued that multiple times since. And today, Charlie and I are going to talk about how we got here, basically digging into our healthcare system in particular. But some of the principles we're going to talk about today, we can apply to many areas of our culture, especially in the political realm today. And so Charlie has all the answers, right, Charlie? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> but I'm glad to chat with you about it. <laughs> right. And these are things that are really good to discuss and have conversations about because diving into figuring out what is going on and how we got here hopefully helps us to make better choices and decisions as we attempt to move forward both as individuals and as a society. So let's just dive in, Charlie. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Thanks for having me, by the way. This is great. <laughs> um, absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you're here. And I know we've been trying to get you on for a while, and I'm glad it's worked out. So I think that almost everyone will agree that our current healthcare system, even before COVID, so taking that out of the picture even, although that's highlighted a lot of our problems, it's pretty messed up, right? <laughs> right. So let's kind of dig into why that is and why some of the solutions that might seem like common sense and obvious to many are not so simple to just jump onto and roll with it. Like we've got a lot of red tape here, a lot of things that have happened in the past. So mm -hmm. go ahead, jump in. How did we get here? Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I think it's, um, as a, and I, I'll I'll be the first to say that I am not a healthcare expert. Um, although we'll go into like maybe why that's not really that important. But what I am someone who I I read a lot and I try to think, um, which is maybe a dangerous thing in today's world. But um, one of the major things, and it's healthcare, it's education, it's the general state of our society. I think it can feel very helpless and people can feel very powerless. And one of the things that I think is helpful in allowing those of us who are concerned about these things to have, feel like we have some agency is to actually take a step back and analyze, okay, like how did we get here? What are the currents that are running through our society that um, have gotten us to this place? Mm -hmm. So, um, and so let's, let's talk specifically about healthcare. I mean, where it seems like we are right now is that we have a huge system. Um, there are some strengths of the system. If you talk about acute care or um, certain rare diseases, I think you can make arguments that the United States system does pretty well there. But the things that many people are concerned about and so frustrated by are our complete lack of ability to provide like lifetime and preventative care. 
the -hmm. fact that a lot of the solutions that we have are not well tailored to individuals. Um, The fact that it's incredibly expensive. Um, And despite the fact that we have thousands and thousands of wonderful and some of the best in the world of medical practitioners, um, the results that we're getting, um, considering the wealth of our nation, are really embarrassing, frankly, when it comes to healthcare outcomes. And yet we're spending so much money on it. And so many families and individuals, you know, feel like they're just caught up in the system. Uh, and not, you know, based off of all of the, if you look at the, you know, sort of the facts on the pa- on paper, it's really disappointing how many um, poor health outcomes that we end up having. So, you know, what I think, so it becomes very frustrating and it feels, for those of us that are concerned about such things, it feels like constantly running into a brick wall when it comes to trying to reform the healthcare system. Right. And Yeah. And and the truth is, and I know we're going to dive into this more, but I mean, and some people don't want to accept this, but a society and a a healthcare system that focuses on wellness and achieving wellness is not profitable for anything with big names beside of it, whether that be pharmaceutical, hospital systems, insurance company. Well, actually, that's not true. Sometimes there are newer programs within some insurance companies. I know this only because my husband is a part of a few of them that are offshoots that are trying to save insurance companies money because they're finally realizing that, well, people save insurance companies money, but insurance companies aren't willing to spend money on things that make people well. So it's kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's this cycle that, yeah, anyway, yes, continue. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no problem. So yeah, I mean, it ends up getting really frustrating. So Mm -hmm. here's, so I, you know, I'm somebody who's really involved in, in politics and I just, I want to see a better society. I want to see better outcomes. So I, you know, I think this is where it's helpful. And I think we'll dig into this a little bit more later, but like, it's helpful to not be an expert sometimes because I didn't have prior, um, as I started digging into this, I didn't have this sort of burden of the one right way to approach things. I'm sort of like, okay, let's look at the entire system holistically. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the key things that happened, and then it's just been a real uh, frog in boiling water kind of type of situation where a lot of people haven't noticed, is somewhere in the uh, you know post-industrial age, um, you know, if you look at the 20th century, massive improvements um, happened as far as the average person's health, right? Life expectancy increased all of a sudden, you know, infant mortality and and maternal mortality both decreased. And so we made these huge leaps. Um, But I think one of the real challenges and frankly, the mistakes that we've made society-wide as we move into the modern age is there's been this tendency to overreach, right? So we made some progress, like uh, all of a sudden, you know, a lot of long-time killer diseases started to have treatments. We started to gain a lot of knowledge about other types of care. And then we sort of started saying, okay, well, why can't we just, you know, solve everything and make it a, you know, perfect healthcare system for everybody while also making sure that there's tons of money and Mm -hmm. profit generated within the system. Um, Right. And that's when you start to see, so a lot of the movements that you saw in the 80s, 90s, 2000s 
was this idea that we can institutionalize and t- and control everything from the top down because ultimately there is this misconception from my vantage point which is that uh the reason that patients might have less than optimal outcomes was oh well an individual medical practitioner must have made a bad decision, right? So if we can take things out of the hands of individuals and eliminate human error, all of a sudden we'll have this utopian healthcare system where uh, decisions are made, you know, at a centralized level. There's sort of every therapy or treatment is sort of funneled through this aggressive and siloed system. Wrong think, quote unquote, is pulled out of out of the institutions. And we'll consolidate power. And guess what? I think that I think there were some potentially altruistic motives, like truly trying to optimize for best outcomes. And then right. the other really nice side benefit for the people that are involved is that when you centralize the power, uh, you centralize the money, right? And mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden, there became these institutions. And you look at them, at, you know, there's there's all sorts of people who have their hands um, in the pot. It's the government, right? Through Medicaid right. and Medicare. It's insurance companies who have rapidly consolidated across the country. It's hospital systems. It's even in some cases doctors, although I think as we'll talk about, a lot of times they've sort of gotten the short shift, ironically, in in, in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you had these, so 70s, 80s, 90s, you start to have things like, uh, well, the government, so going back to the utopian idea, the government coming out of the New Deal, which obviously started before the 70s, but really after the great society in the 60s and going to the 70s, it really became this idea that, well, everybody should have healthcare in the only way of, of a certain standard, right? Everybody should have this. We've decided what the uh, optimal way is to give to treat people and everybody should have that, right? So the government stepped in and said, you know, we'll pay for what is now getting close to the majority of people's healthcare, right? Um, on an individual basis. Well, once the government stepped in, then all of a sudden there was no longer wiggle room on a free enterprise level. The government has to have rules, right? And I won't go down this path, but this is one of the big arguments for kind of libertarian thought, which is that anytime the government gets involved in things, they have to eliminate kind of gray areas. And, (laughs) you know, what ultimately came from that is uh, you have the government stepping in as quote unquote, the customer, essentially, because the government is paying for the care. And so hospital systems, insurance companies, everybody reoriented their entire business model to saying, okay, we got to play by these rules. How do we maximize profit while still playing by these rules? Um, and that that started a right. whole so chain of events. Pause. Yeah, just, just to pause right there sure. to make sure we we highlight the shift. So it went from I'm a I'm a doctor. I have my practice. I answer to my patients, right? right. Mm-hmm. Those, that is who, um, and, and I think that most doctors, that's, that is why they go into medicine because they want to make people better. They right. want to focus on people. Right. But instead now the shift is no, I, my, I don't, I no longer answer to my patients. I answer to government insurance and hospital. So right. Think about the shift of that and where my priorities must lie for me to be able to maintain my livelihood. Exactly. Right? And this this yeah. is not this is not medical practitioners or hospitals, frankly, or anybody really acting in any way that's irrational. And I think that's the important thing. And this gives us a lot of agency when it comes to designing policy is it can feel very overwhelming if you think, well, there's this big cabal and like there's these nefarious schemes. Well, I do think that there is like 
co um co collusion and there's certain definitely a lot of shady things going on but it all starts from a fundamental mistake that we made which is what you're saying emily which is we're sort of like oh well we'll just put the government in the middle of all this and all of a sudden everybody's incentives changed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and so ultimately you had this you start having these cascading effects there becomes not just a feeling that we should have more centralization, but actually a need to have centralization because that's the only way the government can be involved in it. Um, and it ultimately came. So I'll give one like really clear example. So um, if you're an insurance company, you can't survive um, without really on, on, like the big national ones can't survive unless they're accepted by uh, Medicare or Medicaid, right? They, you know, they can't. So, you you're kind of beholden to what the government decides and one mm -hmm. of the supposed reforms that came out was this idea that insurance companies were making too much money essentially uh their profits were too high so um in order to cap that so again like most people would hear that and be like okay cool like let's regulate that and there's just no thought about the incentives that you change so basically the approach to solve that problem was to say that insurance companies can only make a percentage so they can only take home as profit a certain percentage of the premiums that they charge. Mm -hmm. So let's just say for the sake of clarity, it's 10%. So you said, you said, okay, if you charge your, your customers a hundred million dollars in premiums, well, you have to spend $90 million of that on care. Um, and then you get 10 million. Well, what did, what does that tell the insurance companies to do? They say, <laughs> okay, cool. Well, what we'll do is we'll spend more on care because 10% of $200 million is more than 10% of $100 million. So then All they right. said, we'll spend, a great, if that's what you're going to tell us to do, government, we'll spend $180 million on care so that we can bill $200,000. And all of a sudden, the very, in theory, you would think the insurance companies would be incentivized to keep the costs of care down. They're actually re uh, incentivized in the reverse. And there's tons of examples like that. We don't have to go, you know, get right. forensic on every example. But a lot of people, I think, feel really, really powerless about this healthcare system. But when you when you look at like one specific thing like this, all of a sudden, it's like a light bulb goes off and you go, oh, well, that's why it's $45,000 to get an x-ray. It's like mm -hmm. <laughs> that they're playing with Monopoly money. Um, right. Yeah, so we got to this point, and it's just every bit, pretty much um, every bit of kind of government action has in kind of created this ball of yarn, uh, a tangled mess more and more. And some of it has been due to truly, I think, well-meaning people trying to make healthcare better. But once you created this hu these huge institutions, well, what does every institution do? And it's not, it really doesn't have to do with the morality of the people running it, really, in many cases. Institutions look out for themselves. That's right. what they exist to do. Uh, when I uh, graduated college, I worked for Bank of America. Worked with tons of people who really cared about giving good customer service at Bank of America. But ultimately, what are those people's jobs? What was my job? My job was to work for the institution. And so as you have these uh, massive, as we centralize power in these massive hospital systems, these massive, massive insurance companies, uh, even the American Medical Association, all of these huge monolithic groups ultimately 
what are their interests in? Their interests are in their own members or their own profits. Mm-hmm. And guess who doesn't have an institution protecting them? Patients. Uh-huh. And right. that's how we kind of get to where we are today. Yep. That's such a great overview. And, you know, while we can't solve all of the problems, I will say, just to point something out quickly, I think that more and more people are starting to see and understand this because I get messages nearly daily of people who are tired of not feeling like they are getting the level of care that is needed for whatever the issue is that they're trying to address, or they're tired of the bureaucracy of medicine, or they're tired of dealing with insurance and that kind of thing. And we are beginning, and I'm hopeful that it continues. It's very slowly starting, but there is a new shift toward a re- privatization of medicine on some scale. And there's more interest in that. There's more interest in people putting their dollars behind that. And I'm hopeful, I'm not convinced, but I'm hopeful that at least on some small scale, we're going to see that happen where people are actually focused on how do we best care for our patients to get them well, not, not on you know, the traditional way of making money. And then we also are seeing a lot of shift to um, concierge-based medicine or direct pay model. You know, concierge sounds really fancy and expensive, but it's not necessarily um, direct pay where I pay my physician X amount of dollars per year and it covers this amount of services and visits and that kind of thing which gives the power back to the patient because you're making a choice and it gives the power and it gives physicians the incentive and ability to run their practice in a way that helps serve their patients as well, which I'm excited about that. It's very slow in happening, but let's talk about from a larger standpoint, um, what like, like you said, it's, it feels very overwhelming. Like what am I little citizen over here supposed to do? What can we do as citizens to look toward leadership and maybe replace leadership or, or change some of these systems in order to better position ourselves individually and as a society for real, better, solid health care that doesn't cost us $5 billion a year as a, you know, a middle-class family. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, um, let me, if I can, let me take one step back from that and sure, talk yeah. about specifically, because I, I do think that is actually the solution. And I think if we can get out of as individuals and as like the people, quote unquote, um, there are ways for us to take the power back and get out of this the toxic kind of battle of the Titans that often seems like, well, it's either, you know, all, you know, the only options are uh, single payer healthcare, or the only options are, you know, the status quo. There's a lot of things that we can do, but I think one important thing to mention before we get into the political side specifically of it is I think maybe one question that some of your listeners might be asking is sort of, well, why is the, why is progress so slow? Because Mm -hmm. I do think that it's accurate that uh, most medical practitioners, and I I know quite a few, Mm -hmm. um, get into medicine because they want to help people, right? So Mm -hmm. like, why, why aren't we seeing revolts of, uh, of of practitioners against the system when there's, uh, you know, a lot of obvious flaws. And I think 
that's the another second element and another nefarious element of mm-hmm. these big institutions, which right. is they are built to file down everybody who goes through the system. Think about the levels of credentialing and requirements and peer approval and et cetera that a medical practitioner has to go through, right? Mm-hmm. There is these, um, and that's where the role of not only do you have places like Atrium Health who have cl- close to, mono- you know, close to duopoly or monopoly um, power. Well, if they blacklist you, right? And if you go against their program, that could right. be your livelihood. If the American mm-hmm. Medical Association decides that this is the way that certain things are going to be handled or that, you know, equity is their highest priority and they're going to prioritize that over outcomes, all of a sudden there's huge amounts of both felt pressure and actual pressure on these practitioners. And that is always one of the dangers of collecting the power in these spaces. And it really does, in my opinion, flow from this decision we've started making 20, 30 years ago, which is that we don't trust individuals, right? Right. I'm not going to say, yeah, yeah, go ahead. There's one, there's one other piece um, that I think is important to mention and on that same level. And that is that a lot of times we will, you know, if you go to work for a quote nonprofit or, you know, and sometimes it needs to be rural, but oftentimes it's just nonprofit now, which all the big healthcare systems right. are nonprofit, then, you know, if you work for 10 years, five to 10 years, depending on the situation, then they will pay for all of your medical school loans. Well, let's say that you get five years into the 10 years and you're just like, I, this is not what I wanted to do. I can't do this anymore. If you are to leave and go do something different, then those $300,000 plus all the interest that's accumulated over the, the those years are right back on your lap. And right. so that's an, another piece of this fun puzzle that Charlie is putting together for us. So um, anyway, sorry, please continue. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's exactly it. So there's a huge amount when the, when the institutions have all the power, it puts the pressure on the individuals and what that ultimately does. And I think regardless, like, first of all, it obviously puts the individuals in really bad positions, which is not something to overlook, but when you look at it system-wide, it also leads to much worse outcomes because you mm-hmm. have all of this group thing. There's a laundry list. I mean, COVID is just the most recent, but Alzheimer, like so many cancer, so many different um, health challenges that we face as a society. I would argue we are not making progress on treatments for those because all of the um schools of thought, so to speak, on how to handle these things are so aggressively policed. And I agree fully. Mm-hmm. when we have thousands of people who are incredibly, like we are blessed with this wealth of incredibly smart people, people who got into medicine for the right reasons, they're essentially, when we essentially disallowed them from um, chasing different methods that are based off of their own individual experiences. And of course, I'm not saying that like doctors shouldn't have to be trained or doctors should be able to practice just willy nilly. Of course, there is a room for regulation, but um, our um, emphasis on uh, centralizing everything has certainly 
led to not just thousands and thousands of deaths that could have been otherwise prevented, but horrible life lives, frankly, um, dealing with chronic conditions um, that, you know, could be could be solved. And and also, like we've reiterated multiple times, this just unwieldy, incredibly expensive, inefficient uh, system. But at the end of the day, it's much easier to control a system where you're not allowing dissenting viewpoints. And so that's right. why the courage of people like Wiggy and others across the nation to sort of say, no, like actually, despite the fact that this is uh, mm -hmm. dangerous to our careers, dangerous to our reputations, we're gonna step forward um, and uh, put patients first. Um, and yeah, so I, like you, Emily, I am encouraged by some of the developments. Right. Uh, but I think that segues into sort of our next thing because there are big yeah. I, institutional barriers. Love, yes, there are. And I love this and, and we'll cover those relatively quickly because I think almost laying this out helps people, like you said, to think. But I think um, the, the, you know, I get questions all the time as far as our current climate and, and you know, what seems to be groupthink about every last little thing. And what we've laid out is a really great, you know, this is kind of, painting the picture of this is why you don't hear more physicians in particular, because in some ways it's a very prestigious career. Yes. On the other hand, they're some of the most controlled, right. Um, of, you know, from all of this bureaucracy of any profession that there is. And so it's very difficult and it takes a lot of courage and, and, and a lot of seriously i mean it's been it's so hard for some of these doctors to step out and to say no i'm not okay with this they literally are risking everything and so that's just important to point out because they kind of need a friend right now too you know so anyway i think so it's very fair about, yeah let's talk about leadership quickly and kind of mm -hmm. some bullet points as far as you know, what can we be looking for as we're moving forward? And what type of people do we need elected into office to potentially chip away at some of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it can be summarized in one word, which is conviction. Um, mm -hmm. And I think because in the realm of politics, there is uh, and like specifically when it pertains to healthcare, um, it is very easy. There's two routes of attack that any reformer is going to run into. And so for people who are looking for representatives who are going to be willing to take the torch, I would say that I think expertise is the least important thing. I think people mm -hmm. who are willing to learn and people who have backbone um, are what's important because the, there are really two ways that anybody who tries to reform the system will get attacked. Uh, one is that healthcare is similar to education. It's a hard system to take on because there's one very easy and lazy response is, oh, well, you just like, how can you be attacking hospitals? How can you be attacking doctors? How can you be attacking science? Right. It's a the reality is um, this system is so all encompassing that the average American doesn't think that much about it. Right. So one easy way when anybody comes up with ideas to reform one easy way to shoot that person down is just to say, oh, well, you just, you know, you want to see people not get the care they need. You don't mm -hmm. believe that healthcare is a right. And so it takes conviction to withstand those types of assaults and say, no, actually, like, I am the only person here optimizing for 
patient outcomes um, and have the patience and the willingness to kind of go through the nuance. And that's why I am such a huge fan of exploring the whole background of the system. Because mm -hmm. if we get bogged down in wonky policy items, a lot of people's eyes rolls into the back of their head. But if you can sort of empower people and say, well, listen, no, we made some very fundamental, maybe well-meaning, maybe not decisions, you know, before I was born um, that have led us on this path, all of a sudden light bulbs go off above people's heads. But it does take conviction to withstand that initial assault and 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 not be not back down when people say, oh, well, you're attacking doctors, or you're attacking patients. So that's right. one one thing that you have to withstand. That's awesome. Yeah. And then the set. Yeah. And then the second. And this is just the reality is that um, there's a lot of money um set up in the status quo and so you do have um plenty of politicians who are mostly focused on um their own survival right um mm -hmm. sometimes it means specifically lining their pockets that definitely and those are you know the most egregious cases cases and that's terrible um but besides that, there's some people that are not going to actually personally make money off of supporting the status quo, but they are going to get funding to get reelected next time. Right. Right? So anytime <laughs> you pop your head up um, and we we know people here, you know, in our local circle that uh, struggle with this type of opposition, anytime you pop your head up, all of the people that been all the institutions that benefit from the existing status quo will immediately jump on the other side, right? Or at a minimum, they'll say, well, we're just not gonna support you, right? If you take these stands. Mm -hmm. And so what that ultimately, what I think politicians in that position need to do is have more respect for the P American people essentially and say, listen, if I can take, and clearly like new technology helps us take our message directly to voters now in right. ways that we, we couldn't, but we need to have more confidence to say, listen, if I present this, to uh to the average voter they are smart enough to realize that oh wow this like the american medical association the hospital systems the big insurance companies whatever they're not our friends uh, i don't think they're like intrinsically evil they're just out for themselves that's my personal opinion but mm -hmm. uh, many politicians are easily cowed right because at the end of the day um, we have a lot of, you know, a, a lot of times um, you have people that are looking at politics as sort of a plum gig. You get to have a title that's like, I'm so-and-so from, and people clap when you enter rooms and like you have some gravitas. Well, it's like, well, that's not, I would argue that the responsibility and the burden that our elected leaders have actually costs a lot more than that. And so I think voters should be holding should be looking for people who are willing to take on that responsibility and say, listen, this might actually taking this position and uh, acting for reform might actually make my personal life a lot harder. Right. If I think about my own like political career as an example, I know that if you take if you advocate for certain positions, you will make powerful enemies. Um, and it becomes a question of like, well, okay, that may or may not be true. And I'm not saying that we need to, you know, run into every brick wall just for the sake of doing so. But why are you running for elected office if you're not willing to do that? And I think those are the types of questions that we should be asking 
a lot more of our elected officials. Are you, is this an ego trip for you? Are you bored? Are you just looking for an easy payout? And too many are right. I think we should really be holding um, people of both parties to the fire and say, okay, like we're actually going to call on you to make some like tough stands. If you truly care about your constituents, are you Mm -hmm. willing to do that? Um, And, you know, I, I would argue at this point, the majority of candidates that you'll see, I'd say it's mostly few and far between um, like people who are actually have their priorities straight like that. Well, and arguably, you know, you hear this in our state and in in our nation right now is why aren't our concert quote conservative leaders standing up to some of these things that are happening of, around the medical community while well, you're explaining why right now. Right. <laughs> that's why, you know, it's that's that is exactly why I think a lot of people right now feel like they have their hands tied and that they cannot both represent their constituents that are going through all of these challenges and losing jobs and these kinds of things while at the same time serving their donors and you know and i know of a few of our elected officials that have said to these donors i will not be bought and that is a bold difficult stand especially when you're talking about some of these these big names so um, yeah. anyway, <laughs> and I will say just one more thing on that is that I think it's, it's the, you know, follow the money in many cases, and many people are focused on that. And then there's a second right. element to it, which is what I call the dinner club conundrum, which is so many, you, you do have to think about the type of people who tend to go into politics. They tend to be, you know, people who are very concerned about what others think of them. That's just mm-hmm. kind of an archetype. And so right. the dinner club conundrum is the fact that it's sometimes it's more than just about the donor money. It's about, am I going to be welcomed <laughs> at the dinner club? Right. right. Am I going to take stances that are like my, uh, you know, the, the rich elite class are going to look at me and be like, Whoa, like, what do you do? And why are you rocking the boat? And I think right. that is the well, and big challenge. Let's not forget. We live in cancel culture society. So right. one wrong stance on one thing that isn't popular can make you be on the front page of the newspaper for all the wrong reasons. So exactly. And I think, <laughs> yeah. I think the dinner club uh, thing is really a big problem on the Republican party, right? Where you have yeah. a lot of people who I think do actually genuinely hold conservative ideals, but they also kind of like being thought of as, you know, a quote unquote, nice guy or politi- mm-hmm. uh, socially acceptable or whatever the case may be. Sure. And so that holds them back from sort of, and that doesn't mean, of course I'm not. And you know this, Emily, I'm not advocating for being rude or abrasive or, you know, just absolutely unacceptable for the sake of it. I'm right. just saying to have some backbone. Right. And if right. ultimately it's, it's yeah. courage and unfortunately, exactly. it's difficult and you can be very respectful and be courageous and be unpopular and still be courageous and respectful. You know, exactly. character approaches all that, in my opinion. So if we're always displaying strong character, then people might not agree with our stances on things, but they they won't have a lot to dig into when it comes to who you are as a person. So anyway, that's what I try to keep my boys anyway. So (laughs) they're lucky. Um, Yeah. Now let's finish up here because we like to keep these segments pretty short. Any last minute thoughts when it comes to, um, you know, I know we could talk about this issue for the next three hours and, you know, what we need in leaders and that kind of thing. And I think you did a great job of, speaking on conviction because conviction and courage go together. Um, right. But I think that, you know, <laughs> I know, gosh, of some of our local, local state elected officials that 
really are trying to go to bat on these mm -hmm. things. And it's very quickly, you can see who holds the power because there's so much that even with the best of intentions and the best reputation and doing things the right way and being a get or done kind of person, um, still you, there are certain things that you can't even broach without knowing there's nowhere they're going to, no way they're going to go anywhere. And citizens don't like to hear that. But in some ways we have to look at that truth and figure out, okay, if this is where, if this is where we are, we've got to dig deeper and look at this from a bigger level and figure out what happens next. Like some of these things we're talking about in order to make sure we're putting the right people in place that are willing right. to stand and fight even against that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's about being strategic, right? So that would be my message to voters is that this is this is something that is incredibly frustrating and should be concerning to a lot of people. So I think the first answer is um, education. And obviously, if they're one of your listeners, they've already started down that path, right? Um, mm -hmm. But if you look at, I think the, the next thing is to get educated um, in your local jurisdiction, wherever that may be, about, okay, who are the real um, stakeholders and the barriers um, for uh reform and you know it it becomes i think oftentimes some of these grassroots movements end up being a lot of just kind of rage against the machine right just a lot of kind of undirected um energy which i will never dissuade anybody from but i think one of the encouraging things that i'm seeing increasingly and i think uh you know this podcast is a great example of it is there is we've talked a lot about big institutions. Well, the thing about, if you're familiar with the Hobbit, um, Smaug was a, you know, a dragon that seemed like he, and like every dragon has a soft belly and it seemed like he was impenetrable, but all of these huge institutions actually have weak spots because there's individual gatekeepers that are just people, right? And they have incentives too. And so I think smart grassroots movements figure out who are the people instead of looking at trying to take down the whole institution you think about who are the individuals within that institution that can either be persuaded or mm -hmm. removed right those are the those are the um kind of options that you have and so that's a lot of what i spend my effort on is sometimes it's behind the scenes type of stuff but it's thinking all right who's that one person that we can educate with some of this information so that he or she um, is better positioned to be on the side of reform? Or who is this one person who's just never gonna be persuaded? And so therefore we gotta focus our efforts on replacing that individual. That's, right. a, that's what I would and, encourage people to do. And that's something that, and I've talked about it briefly on here before, but we've created a network of North Carolina physicians standing for medical freedom. We are not pro or anti anything except for freedom and choices and informed consent and pay for patient, patient rights and privacy. Um, and, you know, that is exactly what we're trying to do is be a resource yep. for those that want to listen and want to hear and want to understand the other side of the common narrative that has been pushed down all of our throats, including our elected officials, because you better believe that who do they often have in front of them? It's the big leaders and the big organizations. They don't get to hear from the doctors that are serving their patients every day on a daily basis. And so 
that's our goal is to become that resource and help them understand what is actually happening on the inside research that has been suppressed and that kind of thing. And, and so far it's been incredibly effective and I'm really excited about how sensitive to the cause and how much desire there is from many of these decision makers to support and listen and learn. Right. Incredibly impressed by that. So I don't think that everyone is bought and evil and on another side. I really think that this is a lack of education um, in too. this particular instance. So, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, Charlie, we dug into a lot pretty quickly, and I know that we would love to have you back on to talk oh, further. Um, just so you guys know, someday we are all hoping that Charlie will run for office, and I think that you can just see what a great perspective he has. I love in the conversations that we've had how much that you know you really do try to think and discern and to dig in to figure out what we did today, what is actually happening here. And how do we best affect change versus into just buying into the common narrative or the conservative approach to this is this. And so this is what you do. I love that you are such a thinker, Charlie. I love that about you. So anyway, thanks again for joining me today. And I'll look forward to having you back again sometime soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Emily. And I will say um, if, if anyone's interested in following me on Twitter, if you mm-hmm. want to hear more about this stuff, it is at Nita Mulligan. That's my last name, 11. So at Nita Mulligan, 11, if you guys are on the Twitters, but thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. And I'll try to share that in our, if you'll share that with me, Charlie, I will put it in our show notes. Okay. You got it. Thank you. Everyone have a great day.